Welcome to Global Unity Radio. I'm Elliot Bayev. In future episodes, we will dig more deeply into what Global Unity is, the vision, the mission, and how you can participate. But in this episode, we feature an incredible changemaker, Helen Papper, who is a UN leader, peace and security specialist, humanitarian and development expert, global communicator and advocate, and former international journalist. Helen is the Director of Global Communications and Advocacy at EFAD, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, an international financial institution and specialized United Nations agency. This conversation took place on the audio app Clubhouse in one of the Global Unity Club rooms, System Changer Spotlight. Global Unity runs a number of rooms on Clubhouse, from decentralized governance to Changemakers United, to Society OS, and, as we'll hear today, System Changer Spotlight. System Changer Spotlight is a room where we feature a real standout changemaker like Helen, who has made a great impact through dedicating their lives to making a difference. I was instantly taken with her story as soon as I heard about her work using radio throughout Africa to turn child soldiers into journalists. So I think you'll enjoy hearing her story. I certainly did. The folks in the room certainly did as well. Before we dive in, I invite you to go to globalunity.org where you can sign up for our mailing list and learn more about Global Unity and the mission, vision, and folks that we are working with. With that said, enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to System Changer Spotlight. This is an evolution of the room that Taylor and I have been running, um, but not every amazing person we want to hear from focuses exclusively on decentralized governance. And so System Changer Spotlight is a chance for us to spotlight some some folks. We're all really taken with change makers of all stripes, but then there are a few folks where you hear their story and you're just really blown away. And that was my experience hearing a bit of Helen's story. And I wanted everyone to to be able to hear from her, hear her experience and her perspectives, which again, have, have been pretty impactful for me. And so we're going to jump right in. First off, uh, just to introduce Helen briefly, she is, as we'll hear, she's got a background in journalism and peacekeeping and now diplomacy. She's director at EFAD, the International Fund for Agricultural Development at the United Nations and has uh, an incredible wealth of experience in the field. And we'll hear more from Helen on what her current focus is. But Helen, I wanted to actually start at the beginning, so to speak. It sounds like your international adventures didn't start in adulthood, but, but actually earlier on in life. Can you tell us a little bit about how that played a role in your childhood? Sure. Um, well, you know, I was... I, I am French citizen, um, even though many times I'm told I don't sound like one. <laughs> um, I was born in Spain. Um, my dad was a was a teacher, a primary school teacher, but in international schools, and so that's why we were traveling. Um, I was born in Spain, and then I moved to the U.S. when I was five years old, and then um, uh, went back to to Europe and to France uh, for the first time when I was eleven. Um, was in Germany for a bit and then I, I was in theater and I was actually involved in a theater company in Boston so I moved around quite a bit um, 
until I went to college um, and I went to college in, in the U.S. And that's uh, where I began my, my whole career. How did you get you... started thinking about impact? Um, you know, I, um, I was already really engaged in storytelling through, through, through theater. Um, and so I always really was interested in, in telling stories. And because I traveled and because I was in international contexts, um, I think that that really opened me up to the idea of, of communicating and of talking about what, you know, what I had lived in one country versus another. There's the linguistic context as well. But really, I think what, what started really getting me to think about the impact of storytelling and the importance of actually using using stories and using storytelling to um, to move the world closer together in some ways was in my my um, first experience with radio so i got into radio because i went to, to syracuse university in upstate new york and uh, one day we had a, a guy who was running the local national public radio um, in syracuse who um, came in and, and auditioned us and uh, he ended up selecting me and coaching me. Um, and he really launched me on this path to, um, to journalism, which led me then to the rest of my career. But you know, one of the first stories that I covered was um, there were a lot of um, tensions in upstate New York with indigenous smoke shops um, and the whole taxation around that and the land rights. And um, he told me to go up and do a story on it. and. I really knew nothing about indigenous peoples um, except what I had seen through comic books. And I had been a big fan of Tintin um, for, for since I was a little kid. And I don't know if some of you know what Tintin is, but um, Tintin is the story of this young man who's traveling the world as an international reporter. And he gets involved in all of these stories and conflicts. and. Um, it's it's definitely old compared to you know to what it is today, but um, there was uh, a specific um, comic book on on Tintin goes to America, and it was a very uh, a, a very specific construct of indigenous people, um, which is you know the Indians with the feathers in their hair and the teepees and uh, smoking their pipes and and that was the idea that I had, which was. Obviously, when I, I traveled and I went to meet um, this indigenous tribal chief and and the community had nothing to do with what I'd seen in these uh, in these comic strips and these comic books. And you know, he he met me. He was a wonderful man who met me in a building, sitting in a normal you know in a normal area, and what what I considered you know. A, a, completely different than what I had expected. It wasn't the teepee and it was, and when I think about it, it it's ridiculous, right? Um, what I had in my mind, but that was, those were the images that I had seen. And that's when I realized that, you know, we don't know about others until we actually meet them. We don't know about others until we have the possibility to create that connection. And I realized that the power that I had to be able to tell these stories was to deconstruct these false constructions that are actually it can lead to, to terribly damaging situations, right? I think a lot of what we see today, up until today, um, you know, hate, uh, racism, conflicts, war, a lot of it stems from the lack of knowing, the lack of knowing the other, the misinformation that we've been exposed to. 
um, for good or for bad, but the misinformation is usually not, not, not a positive one. And the world has evolved tremendously, right? So because of technology, we now have a lot more access to a lot more reality than we used to. Uh, once upon a time, but that—that's really that that story that got me into this idea of using communication and, and using information rather um, as as a way to deconstruct um, these false constructions and using it as a way to get them to tell their story. Um, and I really very quickly got into a specific style. Yeah. Um, so so I started with. Um, I was really lucky, you know, uh, because I went through this training and this journalism experience in college. Um, while, you know, before I graduated, I was already pretty much a full-time journalist for, for WAR in Syracuse. And um, I started applying for jobs and was hired immediately. So I did, you know, I, I did one internship at Voice of America in like Washington, D.C., which was my, probably my first exposure to do international news um, and of course really enjoyed that and then um, ended up getting a job uh, immediately out of college in Oklahoma um, which was an interesting choice because I had I had a quite a few offers and I decided to go to Oklahoma because I thought okay at the time I thought I'm gonna be a journalist in the United States and I'm gonna stay in the United States um, and, and in parentheses here, I didn't, I'm not American, right? So actually, the station had to request a specific visa for me, which was a, an H-1B visa at the time. Um, and they did make the case of why they were why, why they were hiring me on. And I thought, if I'm going to become a journalist covering the United States, I need to know all of the United States and not just the, the East Coast and, and uh, what I had been exposed to. So um, I, I was quite enchanted to get this job in Norman, Oklahoma, out of all places, where I actually ended up doing a lot more stories on indigenous populations in that particular construct, but also really developed, I developed a program called Oklahoma Voices. So I was, I was the morning edition um, presenter for the local station, which was called KGOU. K-R-O-U, and um, I presented Morning Edition, and at the same time, I, I developed a program, Oklahoma Voices, and the idea was to continue on this path of bringing voices together. Um, and for those of you who know the context of Oklahoma, and, the, and uh, there, there is, there are a lot of tensions based on misinformation, miscommunications, um, tensions with indigenous communities, uh, you know, terrible racism. And the idea was to really start bringing voices together and confront these, this misinformation to reduce, to reduce potential conflict and hatred in the area. Um, and so I, I really quickly got onto that kind of path. And then um, that led me to take a job. Um, I didn't stay very long because I, I had the opportunity to take another position um, in, um, in Iowa City, which, or Muscatine, Iowa rather. But it was actually for an international a program on international diplomacy, um, and that put me on the international path. Definitely called Common Ground, and as you hear from the word, Common Ground means what it is. It was about bringing communities and international voices, international contexts, um, international conflicts into radio programs for that that were going out on national public radio. So those are that, that's kind of what led me onto this um, this path. Mm -hmm. 
And, yeah, no, and how did the transition from journalism to peacekeeping unfold? Well, that was quite quite later, um, mm. quite later on, because from from Iowa, I ended up um, not having my visa renewed, and I had to go back to um, to France. And when I got to France, uh, I, let's see, I hadn't had my career there. I hadn't launched my career. I hadn't uh, worked in France um, professionally. Neither had I studied in French in terms of journalism. And so when I got to France and I realized, well, I am French, but I don't know how to go continue in my field because mm. I didn't have the linguistic constructs to do that. Neither did I have really any type of basis to go and work for a French station. Um, and so for quite a while, I didn't really know what to do anymore. Um, uh, and and uh, I, I ended up teaching English and completely uh, leaving journalism behind for for a while mm. uh, and really enjoyed this uh, this part of my life of teaching um, and teaching English to adults. And uh, a friend of mine one day who I had gone to college with um, who contacted me and he had entered the UN and he was a UN volunteer based in Kosovo. And one day he contacted me and he said, what are you doing teaching English? <laughs> You're a journalist. You were really good at what you were doing. You know, you were already starting to interview, you know, world leaders. And, and it's true. I had, you know, in, in while I was based in Iowa, I had already started doing international reporting. I had uh, my first international story was from Gaza and from Israel. That was, you know, before I left the U.S. Um, and I had done a whole series of stories on these communities that had closed themselves and walled themselves in to avoid, you know, racial divides and religious divides. And we're really working on a new construct of society within their walls um, across Israel. So that was a really interesting story to cover. So, you know, he mentioned that and he said, you can't, you can't leave that behind. And I had also um, gotten to do a story on Iran with Walter Cronkite. And for those of you may have known of Walter Cronkite. He was a very, very famous broadcaster and journalist in the United States. Um, and I had uh, done a whole series on polio across Africa um, and had uh, been in touch also with Jimmy Carter and his foundation and interviewed Jimmy Carter. That was the first you know, major kind of presidential interview um, that I got to do. So, um, you know, fast forward that, he was reminding me of these stories and he said, you know, I really want you to come and cover what is happening in Kosovo. It was in uh, 2002 in, De in December, January, I believe. Um, and it was at a time where Kosovo was just coming out of very, a very intense conflict. Um, and there was a lot of issues with the return of communities back to their original um, towns and lands. Um, the, Ser the Serbians and the Albanians and uh, the Roms, what were called the Roms, um, the Ashkeli, and and he sent me a, pl uh, a plane ticket. And I ended up landing in Kosovo in the dead of winter. Um, it was a very difficult arrival because we couldn't actually enter Kosovo, so I had to land it uh, in, 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 in Macedonia, I think it was. And... Uh, and a taxi drove me to the border, but he couldn't, you know, he couldn't take me in. And I had to actually walk across through the snow to get to the other side, to get into Kosovo, 
which was a, a very um, difficult. It was a, it was a challenging time because it was difficult to get into Kosovo, and there was a, there were a lot of tensions, um, and uh, and it really just put me into this this world of barely getting out of conflict um, and a lot of community tensions and a lot of difficulties and you could feel it and when I arrived where, where he was based um, and he was as I said a, a UN volunteer at the time in a community called Strepse um, which was Serbian uh, and you could just feel it and I was looking and I had I knew about the conflict and I knew how people had been involved and the brutality of the conflicts that had happened in the area and and you could just feel it in the air um, and at the same time you know I started really getting to know people getting to know their stories getting involved with this necessity to go back to their own identities and their attachments to their communities their attachment to their lands and at the same time having to heal from the conflict um, and it was it was very it was probably one of the most impactful, I think, ways of starting this whole this whole career path. I followed a family, for instance, who was being brought back to their house, to their home, um, an Albanian family in a, in a Serbian community. And there had been a lot of interviews done by international um, organizations to make sure that the community was ready to receive them and that they could come back without fearing violence. And I followed them into this return. And the next day when I came to see how they were doing, they had been killed. Mm. And that really got to, even today, I still get tears um, because these were children. This was, you know, and I thought, how, how, where is that, that violence that comes from this, um, this seeking of identity? How, how do you get to the point of being able to kill little children? a baby, a family trying to come back to their home. But at the same time, I realized the importance of being able to know the stories of the people, all the people, right? And not judge. Yes, it's very easy to go into, you know, how could they and therefore they are bad, you know, but it's very important to actually go behind that. What leads to this violence, whether it's from one community or another or another? And that's really what got me into developing stories in this area. Um, and uh, I ended up, you know, launching, a, 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 you know, um, selling stories as, as, so as a, an independent reporter for the first time and understanding also how to sell these stories, which was very new to me because I'd never done that and becoming an international correspondent um, by selling my stories to Deutsche Welle and then being picked up by the BBC and NPR and so on and so forth. Um, and so that, that and that's that was also my first introduction to the UN and to the work that they did on the ground, and to understanding what they were doing in this particular context, um, and how they were they were working with the with the different forces on the ground, um, how they were recreating institutions to be able to create a united Kosovo. Uh, it was it was quite fascinating, and uh, from that story, I ended up doing another story which I think impacted me a lot which was on the trade of prostitution um, coming into Kosovo when I was in Mitrovica at the, at the border with Serbia and um, I was waiting I, I was doing a story on the peace train this peace train 
was a train that traveled all through the country and that was connecting the different regions, um, the Serbian, the Albanian regions, and so on. What really shocked me about the train was that the wagons were separate based on if you were Serbian or if you were Albanian. Um, and the fact that we were on that train really alarmed certain people. We had a translator with us who was Albanian and we were sitting on a Serbian train and the, um, the, 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 the security that was moving around was telling us how dangerous it was for us to go up to Mitrovica with this, this particular translator. Um, but he, you know, he knew where we were going and he knew he, he understood, but he had, he did end up having to get off. The security wouldn't let him go into the heart of Mitrovica. Um, and he ended up having to get off before we went into the, the, uh, the Serbian enclave. And when we were, um, I, after going around Mitrovica, and that's a very long story, but after going around, we were waiting for the train to go back and I saw coffins being loaded in. And I saw the, the one of the one of the um, the tops of the coffin being lifted up, and it was a woman who was rising up to get some air. And I started asking around what this was about, and they were saying this is how they bring women and prostitution into into this area, um, and you know, the prostitution that was tied to an area where there were a lot of. Where, where, where there were a lot of um, armed forces and prostitution was being was a common trade, unfortunately. Um, and uh, I ended up doing a whole story. Again, it would be a very long story to tell here, but a whole story following these women who were being transported into coffins, into the country to serve as prostitutes in different areas and different hotels. Um, and it was a very difficult story and a very, a very harrowing one. Um, because then that got me into looking at human trade and human trafficking and the link between that and the economies and weapons trades and violence and what fuels violence and all the constructs that come into to these situations. That's what really got me into my career of getting, you know, getting the, those voices of, of the most vulnerable and the often overlooked communities. Mm-hmm must have been such a harrowing time seeing all this happen. I'm wondering. What gave you the the fortitude to to keep going, or did you have when you saw the real danger and you saw these things happen? Did you have questions about stepping away? Sure, um, it wasn't easy. Um, I wasn't even sure how legitimate I was to tell these stories. You know, I was I was in my early twenties. Huh? I, I had started. You know, I think it's different today where where you see, um, you know, people studying much later and uh, then they, they go through many internships and so on and so forth. But 
but I, you know, my career started very young. And so I was in very, very early 20s. I, I graduated early um, from college. And, and so I had started this. I was, you know, 22, I think 23 when I was doing these stories. So I, <clears throat> I, it, it was it was challenging and I was wondering, you know, am I doing this right? Am I telling the story right? Is, is this, does my, is my voice going to make a difference? Um, and it was very hard to see. And so at the same time, I wanted to continue this. And at the same time, I was also trying to figure out, okay, how, how am I going to move forward? What stories am I going to go cover? But, you know, a lot of this just, I ended up, of course, through this meeting people who, you know, I met somebody, um, I met a photographer um, who was working and, and also reporting on, on the uh, situations in Kosovo. And um, by following him, at one point, he invited me to follow him. Um, and we ended up uh, going to Iraq. And at the time that I was in Kosovo, um, I was already seeing K-4 trucks. So these were the UN vehicles that were leaving and we were realizing that they were actually already being moved to Iraq. Um, so it was a very particular time. Um, and then I ended up in, in uh, following him through a, a very long, long type of story as well and a long trip to end up in Baghdad um, at a time where conflict was ensuing there um, and where I ended up kind of being left alone um, because he was very busy doing his photography and because of the conflict and because of the bombing that was taking place there, you know, we ended up being separated. And I realized that I was not prepared for mm. this um, and not really there with a whole construct to be able to tell stories. I, I did end up doing recordings live from there, but I also ended up going back through um, um, contacts I made on the ground with French um, forces who ended up letting me, you know, to travel back with them to France. It was, it was a, po a point where I was wondering, okay, do I want to do this? I, this is where I saw danger. This is where I saw bombings. This is where I was in the heart of, of violence and didn't quite know if I was equipped yet to be able to, to be in these situations without the, the connections or, you know, without being sent by a, a real network and just being there by myself. Um, and so I did go back to Paris and then I started working from Paris uh, and, I, and I got jobs, you know, here and there. And this is where I started working for Radio France International. This is where I started also on a project on building a radio station in Paris for the English language community. So that was very different than the international correspondence and the war reporting. And so, you know, for the next few years, I did a lot of different things. I, I worked for Radio France. I worked for, for French TV. Um, as a journalist and as a and as a host and as a reporter, and I was getting jobs, you know, where they were because I also needed to to make a living. And and journalism, um, despite what people may think, sometimes is is not a terribly well paid uh, profession. But you do it out of passion, you know, unless you're you're a star reporter for a star television. But when you're a foreign correspondent, you you really have to balance the stories and at the same time making ends meet. Um, I was living out of my grandmother's little room that she had that she allowed me to stay in, in, in an apartment in Paris. And I was flying in and out covering stories. Um, and at the same time, I was 
doing these different different jobs. I was working a lot. I can tell you that uh, working a lot meaning that I you know I was uh, I was a morning news presenter for IFI and then I was starting up this radio station and then I would fly out to cover a story on an international story that I was being um, paid to do and then would come back and so it was an interesting path and um, and the, the and at the same time at that point. And I'm, I'm afraid to weave too many things into here, but, the, you know, technology was just changing. This was, you know, 2000, so we're, we're talking back 2003, 2004, 2005, um, where at the time, you know, there was just brewing um, the, 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 the concept of communication through the internet, of radio through the web, of video was barely, the idea of putting video on the web was something that was extremely, extremely new, very costly when it came to streaming, um, and, and something that was barely starting. And, and when I started this project of the radio station for the, uh, the English language radio station in Paris, which was called Paris Live Radio, at the very beginning when we were shopping this around, people were saying, what, radio on you know, radio on the web? Are you crazy? Hmm. That's never going to work. Um, video on the web. And I, I started from that, I started a production company um, called Media's Pick. And I brought a lot of the concepts that I was learning through these different um, storytelling techniques and through through my travels and through the reporting to really create a new way of thinking about how we communicate and how we use you know, for, for companies, for tourism, and so on, the fact that it was extremely important that when when um, communication or information was going out, that it was adapted to, to target audiences, that if you were communicating for a French audience, there's a specific way of editing your story and of telling your story that is different than what the American expectation is or that the Indian expectation is or that the you know, uh, expectation in terms in, in, in Japan or in Indonesia. And I started realizing, you know, the constructs, the phrasing, the, the, the pace of images, the colors are different. Um, and so I was able to get a team of international journalists together to start creating this, this company called Mediaspic. Um, and uh, that was focused on, on, on tourism on one hand and on um, institutional corporations on the other. And this was starting to go really well, um, and and uh, I I got an award for the youngest you know innovative creator um, in Paris at the time, but all of this wasn't making that much money. Hmm. And at the same time, I really wanted to figure out how to start my company, and I had applied for you know for 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 jobs here and there on the uh, web. And one night I got a call um, out of the blue from Haiti. My father calls me and says, you know, somebody from Haiti is trying to call you. And I said, who, who from Haiti? Something about the UN. And I said, no, I, I don't know what that's about. Um, and I had actually applied but didn't realize it on a website called Galaxy at the time. And so I ended up having this guy call me on the phone who was doing the final recruitment for um, a radio producer in Haiti for the UN peacekeeping operation. And the recruitment processes today at the UN have nothing to do with what it was. Um, but he interviewed, you know, he said, are you available for an interview? And he just interviewed me. And he said, you know, you're the best candidate for this position. Do you want to join the UN? And I really didn't understand what this really meant. But I was so desperate to figure out a way to make, you know, 
real money at the time to then, in my mind, continue my company that I'd started, this media spic, that I accepted. Um, and within a few weeks, I had a contract. And within a few weeks after that, here I was going to training for my first peacekeeping operation. Um, and this was in my mid-20s and um, ended up going to Brindisi, which was logistics space, which is where they trained uh, people who were onboarding into peacekeeping. And that just kind of completely changed my, my world, um, of course. Uh, not to mention just the entire, you know, being introduced to what the UN was, being introduced to peacekeeping, being intro- being going through trainings and proper trainings on, on conflict zones, um, going through trainings where you're being kidnapped, where you're being asked to go through a lot of different uh, potential contexts to see how you would react and being trained on those those specifics, doing a lot of physical training as well, um, and, uh, you know, wearing a, a bulletproof, uh, the, the UN bulletproof jackets, which are much heavier than the ones that we have as, as journalists, and, and so on. And, and, um, and from there, I, I landed in Haiti. And that was the beginning of my peacekeeping experience. Um, Haiti was an extremely impactful area as well. Um, that was devastated by, by poverty, but at the same time that had this amazing vibrance and culture and uh, people that was that transcended me. Um, and I was, you know, I did come into Haiti to start the beginnings of building a radio station to accompany the um, democratic processes that was instilling in the electoral process which would end up seeing the election of René Préval. Um, and that was a, it was a, an incredible experience. I, I traveled Haiti, you know, I, I recruited um, Haitians to start working on this radio station with me, but we didn't have a frequency and there was a lot of lobbying to get a frequency at the highest levels of government. But since there were a lot of radios already, they didn't really understand why the UN needed a radio. And so that meant a lot of negotiations to say, yes, but this is a different, this would be a space of protected space to create unity between the different areas and between the different regions. Um, and as we were you know, going through that process, we were also covering the country. Um, and I was in helicopters back and forth and working with the different uh, peacekeeping military you know, um, units that were there. And I ended up uh, um, covering the Argentinian military and the Ecuadorian military. So, you know, it's a long story, but that's really how I entered peacekeeping. Mm-hmm. And how, tell us more about how long it took to set up these radio channels and stations, rather, and what was that process like? Uh, not as much. I mean, it sounds like there were some governmental hurdles you had to get through, but culturally, it sounds like a UN station is a new concept or a new new approach to using radio. How was it adopted? What were some of the challenges you had in setting that up? So in Haiti, you know, like I said, uh, Haiti, I didn't, I didn't stay long enough um, to actually see it through in terms of having the frequency. Um, uh, but we already had started negotiating spaces on national uh, radio to be able to have specific programs to accompany the, the, um, this electoral process. Mm. Um, and I started doing a lot of trainings on 
the uh, with journalists across the country on the importance of creating um, programs that were actually going to support populations in better understanding the particular processes, but also addressing some of the um, some of the, the the gaps that I heard on air, which was programs that really specifically talked to their needs, whether it was health, whether it was education, um, whether it was um, understanding why the international community, what the international community was doing. And so I did start working with local journalists through these trainings on building these particular programs to really go back to the roots of information, because sometimes we forget, you know, that information, the core roots of information is really to support people in in building their lives in the way that they want to build it and to understanding um, and, and to use that information to actually support them in moving forward. And uh, so that was that was a very, very interesting process. Like I said, I ended up having to leave for for a number of reasons, but it was it was. Um, it was a very intense period in Haiti. There were a lot of tensions. There were a lot of kidnappings at the time um, and uh, and a lot of violence that was around, that was linked to poverty, that was linked to the lack of, of having a proper voice and a recognition. It was linked to um, different community tensions. It was uh, uh, linked to land rights a lot. Um, so it was uh, it, it was very eye opening, mm-hmm. um, and then my mother got sick, and I decided to to leave. I also actually got quite sick in Haiti, and uh, and and was going through treatment at the Argentinian military base and hospital, and then ended up um, going back to France and worked at France twenty four at the setup of this international news network. So I left the UN for a while. When I left, people saying, you know, you're crazy. People never leave the UN once they're in. Um, and I didn't see it that way. Plus, I had still this concept of starting up the, uh, or continuing to build this company that I'd started. So I ended up staying a little over a year in Haiti and then went back to journalism for a while. For a few years, I ended up being an international correspondent and a, and a foreign analyst, um, foreign policy analyst, rather, at uh, France 24, which was also you know, part of my learning experience and career path because... France 24 was um, was a, a um, uh, what do you call it, um, a test trial, something new. The idea of having um, a television station that was going to air in three, then four different languages at the same time, um, with a lack of understanding of that, what that really meant. Um, it was airing, it kicked off in French, English, and uh, Arabic, and the the people who were directing it thought that the stories could go out at the same time at the sa- you know in the same languages but the again what i was saying before the way that we tell a story depending on your language and culture is very different so that that evolved and i did a lot of stories um and through that one you know through that i think you know the one main you know main life-changing event that happened while i was back in journalism which then linked to my my UN career after that, back to my UN career, was um, having the opportunity to go and cover um, the, the Ecuador. You know, I, I really wanted to go do stories in Ecuador. And why Ecuador was because when I was in Haiti, I had met and worked with Ecuadorian um, peacekeepers. 
and one in particular who I wanted to see again. So when I arrived at, uh, at Breast 24, I said, I really want to go do stories in Ecuador. And they're like, why? You know, what's important about there? And at the, same, at the time, you know, the FARC, there was a lot of conflicts in the area related to the FARC, related to the kidnapping of Ingrid Betancourt. Um, and through a lot of research, I ended up being able to, to convince them to go uh, to let me go to Ecuador and where I started covering a specific story on the destruction of the Amazon by Texaco Chevron, which is another very impactful story. Um, and at the same time, starting to cover the whole story on the kidnapping of Ingrid Betancourt, linking that to and, um, and eventually getting an interview with the president of Ecuador, who was very, very difficult to speak to, um, Rafael Correa, where I got an exclusive interview with him. Um, and and very you know got very much involved in the politics of Ecuador, Colombia, and Venezuela at the time. Ran into Hugo Chavez at the airport and was able to do an interview with him. Um, and uh, Uribe in Colombia. And so I really got very much involved. At the same time, it was extremely complex. And this is where you realize that information and politics are not always a very good mix. Um, and that was a very challenging time because uh, I, I got so deep into the story that I did have people trying to get to me, to trying to understand what information I had and didn't have. Um, my apartment in Paris was ransacked while I was doing investigation on this. Uh, my friends' computers were, 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 were taken, those who had been in my apartment, because in, during that whole time I was coming in and out. I was doing my investigations and then I was coming back to Paris and I was going back into the field. Um, I learned a lot through this process, but at the same time, it was extremely difficult and ended up having to remove myself from this. Once Betoncourt was, uh, was released, um, and I decided to go back, you know, to take a break from journalism. It was, it was very difficult. It was very difficult to get the real stories out. Um, freedom of the press was really being questioned at the time, uh, in, even in France. Uh, when um, when uh, the president Sarkozy was was president, and I ended up um, applying for a an ambassadorship program through Rotary to just go and do research. I was thinking, okay, I need a break from all of this, and I want to do research and further my thought process on communication as a tool for peace, information as a tool for peace, and the difference between both. And I ended up getting this uh, world peace ambassadorship that uh, led me to Berkeley. California, and I was extremely happy to 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 have that opportunity. Um, just a few months later, though, as I was just getting my feet wet at Berkeley, doing research and starting to teach as well, I actually got a contract offer to go set up the radio station in South Sudan, or to expand the radio station that I had already started being set up, and this was through the UN. And uh, I went through, you know, through days of, of, of tearing my hair out, uh, wondering whether I should I should uh, leave the U.S. with I had really wanted to come back to the U.S. for a very long time, and whether I should just go go back into the U.N. which I ended up doing, um, and and I never regretted it. Um, and so then I went to South Sudan, and that that was the beginning of a whole new chapter in terms of setting up a radio station and what that meant. First, I mean, wow such a such a storied uh, journey on the way there kind of getting being in the UN leaving back to journalism experiencing I mean you shared a little more about 
some of the challenges in Ecuador around Chevron and, and some of how that all played out. But coming back into the UN, uh, working in South Sudan, what, what year was this and how did things unfold from there? Um, South Sudan was in 2009, if I remember correctly. Um, it was the summer of 2009, or it was, yeah. Um, or 2008, actually, I think. So, so uh, yeah, 2008. Um, yeah, so I ended up going back. I, I, I ended up flying to Sudan. Um, I went back to training, believe it or not, for, for the UN because it was a separate mission that that no longer happens once you've done one training you're done but this in this particular case I did uh, because I had left the UN I went back as a newbie quote unquote and so I went back to training and um, from there I ended up going to to Khartoum and Khartoum was a, a type of land that I had never seen before it's the desert it's the Sahara desert you can really feel feel it um, you can feel the the particular culture of North Africa in Khartoum, and it's uh, um, you know the, the 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 desert wind and the heat of the you know forty degrees, but extremely dry, so that you feel that your skin is wrinkling um, within a few minutes of being outside, and at the same time the sound of the mosques, and it's a it's an atmosphere. I think you know when you travel and you go into these different countries. It's the atmosphere of the land, the geography, the culture that really gets to you at first, right? And to and to understand that you're in a completely different reality, a completely different construct than where you may have come from before. And taking the time to really breathe this in, to look around you, to look at the people, to 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 to, to feel, you know, what this is all about. And and it was at a very specific time where there was a call for unity. Sudan and South Sudan should, according to the government of the north um, of, of, of Sudan, should stay united. And yet the South was brewing, was brewing with, with this want to create their own identity, to be recognized as a separate country, to be recognized through what they had been through. They had also undergone an intense civil war, had been persecuted in South Sudan um, by the Janjaweed militia and by, and they, for them, the South Sudanese, many saw the Northerners as their enemy. Um, and you can't judge, you know, this is where you can't say, no, they are, or no, they aren't. What you have to just, you, you have to take a step back and see what the different constructs are. The, the radio station, um, which was called Radio Mariah, which is called, which means mirror, um, was, you know, set up to try to create this unity. The call for the mandate of the UN at the time was unity um, and to bring populations together and to create these spaces for dialogue. It was very difficult. We couldn't get a frequency in the north. Um, and so we had to broadcast through AM and not FM, which meant, which is a whole challenge in terms of satellite uh, transmission. The people who were hired to do, to become the journalists of the future of this radio, a lot of them were child soldiers. This venture was, this this particular construct was built between the UN peacekeeping, you know, under the UN peacekeeping flag and a, an organization that worked very closely in terms of radio building, which uh, is called Fondation Hirondelle which is based in Lausanne 
in Switzerland and um, with a with a very specific mandate of radio as a tool for peace. Um, and so the training of child soldiers that had come from all of these different areas of the South and of the North, that was the main ambition. And the idea was to, to create a ripple effect through the youth of you can have a future. You can, you have, you have been raised with weapons in your hands. You have been raised with guns, but you can put them down and you can learn how to speak to each other. And through that, you will enable others to speak to each other and we will construct and reconstruct what war has destroyed and it was it, it was very difficult it was challenging it was challenging to work with people and, and the youth who had been through this and to bring them together around a table and to do trainings together and to get over their own conflictual dynamics which you know ignited uh, every single day as we were trying to get them to to go, you know, to get over what they had seen and heard and what they had lived, not to get over it, but, you know, to be able to move to another dimension where they learned about each other. They learned about really what is their construct of humanity, which is the need to be recognized, acknowledged, heard, the need to get up in the morning, the need to drink, the need to, to sleep, the need to, you know, um, to, to be human to protect your family, to protect your community, um, falling in love, falling out of love, the fighting, etc. So that's really, you know, it was first, first and foremost, building that construct within the construct of this radio station that was going to go on the air and creating that possibility. And through that, starting to create programs that address those very issues that we've just talked about. And the radio station little by little grew little by little started getting rec uh, a recognition, an important recognition across Sudan. Uh, I was based in Juba in the south. And so Juba in and of itself was a very, very different reality. And South Sudan was a country that was barely, you know, exposed to the rest of the world, um, where when I arrived, there was one road that connected the airport to the presidential house or palace, if you want to call it. Other than that, there, there were no there were no roads, um, concrete roads, I, I would say. Um, people lived in Tukuls, and it was a very, very different type of community than even the North was, which then, as I started living in the South, South Sudan and traveling to South Sudan, I started understanding this necessity to create a different type of construct, political construct in their own country. It was geographically completely different than the North, culturally completely different. Um, there was the Arab North and then the Black South, which was also very different and where they didn't recognize each other. Um, and there was this call for, for it to being, again, to be recognized for their own identity. At the same time, South Sudan was full of many, many, many different identities, right? Seven, more than 70 different tribes within South Sudan who also had their conflictual stories and their conflictual past, which somehow was muted because of this common enemy in the North. But that wasn't going to last forever. However, during the particular time that I was there, when, we, when I was asked to expand the radio station from Juba to all 10 states, to support the, the, the electoral process and eventually the referendum process, which would lead to secession of the South from the North 
and the constructs of a new country, of South Sudan, it was clear that there was a lot of work that also needed to be done to address the tribal differences within South Sudan. And this is where I learned um, and tried to really insist within the, the international communities and the constructs that the importance of dialogue. The dialogue was, was really key um, to be able to potentially imagine peace. Um, and I think that that was not necessarily taken as much as it should have been. So yes, this radio station grew. Yes, you know, we were able to eventually expand it to 10, to 10 different states, which was extremely challenging logistically to get in the equipment, to get in the material, to figure out how the material would, and, and the, the, the broadcasting equipment would sustain the heat, to, to get, you know, engineers involved in creating these different types of containers to protect the equipment and so on and so forth. Building a radio station is not, it's not just the programming, it's also the logistics of it. Securing the airwaves, securing the satellites so that they're not taken over by people who want to use these airwaves to be able to make, uh, to, to create misinformation, which can lead to new conflicts. Um, it's a, it's a tremendous responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what I learned, <laughs> the responsibility that it was. Mm -hmm. You spoke offline about how radio was used for ill in Rwanda, and, and this was a mission to do the opposite and to use it to bring people together. You spoke about a song that was co-created. Could you tell us a bit about that before we go on? The song was actually in Mali, um, mm. so that was later on. But... Um, um, you know, for I, I think it's it'd be good to talk a little bit more about South Sudan. I think if you want before yeah, please. before I got get into the story on Mali because that's a whole different uh, another type of story and a different construct. But you know, South Sudan um, was an experience where the importance, like I said, the importance of bringing voices together was was extremely important and not necessarily you know signified enough and actually you know there ended up being as you know a civil war after independence in south sudan and one of the reasons that i believe it, um that it came to be and of course it's not only that but at the time there were a lot of there was a lot of political anonymity between the different the different tribes um, that I had talked about, and the fact of bringing the radio station, this oh, this radio station was the only radio state, national radio station, with a protected space, right, with ethical information to be able to address conflicts when conflicts were brewing across South Sudan, because we had gained such a trust factor, people would call us and say, you know, there's conflict in my area and this, and we would go there with microphone in hand and just have people sit down and talk about what the conflict was about to get them to put their weapons down. And this happened on a very regular basis. Mm -hmm. It was extremely important. At the same time, I had journalists sometimes who, who forgot about their responsibility and who they themselves, I had one journalist one day who actually was so upset about, you know, what, what uh, he was so concerned um, that the referendum wouldn't lead to secession, that he went on air and did the cry of war, uh, a cry of war that hadn't been heard since the signing of the peace agreements. And people immediately went in the streets and started looting and people got scared mm -hmm. because that created fear. 
And so that is how quick conflict starts. And this is what I really want to, you know, I think impress here because this this experience is about South Sudan. But I really want um, to to say that the importance of this is actually it mirrors our societies around the world. This is a very particular area that I'm talking about. But actually, the capacity to use communication, information, the type of you know constructs that we are capable of using to ignite conflict, it's extremely quick. And so we have a responsibility when we speak. We have a responsibility when we have access to any type of communication and information. Uh, and we have a responsibility to make sure that the most diverse, you know, people and voices are also given the, uh, the possibility to speak and talk to each other um, and or else conflict then ensues. So there's a lot of things that happened during during that time. But, you know, when the radio station was taken off air by um, by the government for and by or by forces for those particular days, when really there was the at the height of a new conflict, the conflict ensued very quickly. People, you know, there, the rumors went very quickly about new a new conflict brewing between different communities, and that was it. And it just went extremely quickly across the country. There had not been enough time to actually do this work on dialogue and reconciliation and getting over people's fears and so on and so forth. Uh, it went very quickly. And so for, for me, that lesson is the importance of not forgetting that. Well, we're seeing today with communication channels, which are fairly sophisticated, um, being co-opted by you know organizations like Cambridge Analytica, bringing polarization how it might have a more, a less, a less overt uh, impact or a less immediate impact. But hearing these stories show us the power of communication channels being co-opted to, to call for violence have a, have a very direct impact, an immediate impact. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, to take a step back from, from the peacekeeping narrative and story that I'm telling you, I mean, I think what that this this is definitely what I learned, but I think it's a lesson that we all need to understand and to try to to promote because because today we have access to a lot of different areas, a lot of different platforms. Sorry to communicate, right? We have social media. Look at us in Clubhouse here talking. Um, we have uh, access to to the different platforms and no more. Um, verification of information and communication there's a there's a blur now that's happened between communication and information information at the root if, if you know the root base like i said earlier of information is to support people in decision making within their their local community within their region within their country within their life information needs to be verified and triple checked to make sure that actually people are getting verified information right factually based information communication is 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 much more it's much broader we're communicating i'm telling you about my feelings i'm telling you about what i think i'm telling you things that i'm not coming i'm coming from a personal point of view or an organizational point of view but it's a very different type of construct than informing and so that um today the fact that anyone from around the world has the possibility 
to have a voice and 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 it's not you know again i'm going to correct myself because there are still a lot of people who are left behind and who are not part of this and who don't have the possibility to have a voice and i do think it's extremely important to ensure that people have a voice so i'm not at all discouraging that and the the amazing you know progress we've made through technology but with that progress comes responsibility the responsibility of understanding when you have a voice when you can communicate when you can write when you can cross boundaries through what you're expressing that you need to be careful about what you're saying because if that if it is misinformed or if it is you know linked to rumors linked to hate or linked to te- you know detention building it can very much spiral out of control and we saw this through the covid pandemic people were using networks of information to spread disinformation which led to catastrophes in certain countries and in certain areas led to people dying um and covid is just an example but this happens every day it happens all the time um technology is something that we still need to very much all of us think about how where where are the security barriers was as much as it evolves with ai that's coming around and taking in a lot more space where is the security um to be able to address that without him you know without tampering freedom of speech but at the same time we do need to be very very careful and that's where i think education comes in we need to start creating new educational constructs in schools with our youth with our children about the power of communication about the power of having the freedom of speech more so than ever before because i don't think that it's something that is necessarily come you know it, it it seems logical to us when we talk about it but i don't think it's necessarily in the in the basic constructs and it's extremely important to be able to un, to to explain how do we use that freedom of speech and voice that we have well now that everyone basically is a broadcaster everyone who has access to social media that becomes so much more vital it's no longer centralized bodies news stations governments it's now literally everyone and everyone you know and i'm seeing it in my own social feeds where folks are perpetuating not only misinformation but as you're saying communicating in a way that is almost stoking stoking certain fires and and i'd like the framing that with this new power comes comes greater responsibility yeah it's absolutely that um and and i think that that's um i think that we all need to understand it but i think governments need to also and i know that governments are doing a lot of work on this and as well as international organizations you know the un launched a, a campaign that was called verified that ended up being then turned into pause um and the, the whole messaging behind it is you know pause before you share mm-hmm. look triple source your information go and check what it's about before you go and share it on your networks understand the responsibility you have by creating that by by that click that click of share mm. um you know we we we've seen it and there's a lot of thinking as you know right now around these social platforms and the power that now twitters and facebooks and instagrams have to potentially say not verified or to actually ban somebody from from participating in a, on a platform and this is where we're going into very risky territory so where's the limit how do you define what is shareable versus not shareable what do you define is the limit in terms of freedom of expression versus dangerous freedom of expression it's uh very subjective in in, in many ways right um, um i think it's it's going to be very interesting to see how this 
how how this whole thinking process evolves. But we all need to be part of that thinking process. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, it's these social platforms have created a new commons, but they're commons that are privately regulated, and so there's this disconnect between the governance of what what have ostensibly become the collective platforms for information gathering and and sharing and what is not a a collectively kind of chosen even though we recognize there are problems with our electoral uh, models and our governance structures at least they're intended to represent the will of the people whereas the ceo of twitter is just the ceo of twitter and when twitter becomes the default collective open space or, or cafe through which people share information, having it dominated by one body is, is it just increases these, these risks, especially as those in, in those positions may be the kindest, most altruistic people, but what happens when they get replaced in time, right? I'd love to hear a little more of uh, how, how the efforts in Sudan played out and, and maybe move to Mali before we get into your current work. Yeah, well, you know, um, Sudan, I left South Sudan right after the referendum process. Um, actually, yeah, after after the declaration of after the independence, actually. So there was a referendum and then there was the independence um, in uh, it was in 2011, in July 2011. And I stayed until the end of that year and left. Um, I had the opportunity opportunity to to I you know I had spent almost four years it was uh an amazing and, and probably some you know I don't think I'll I'll live through through that type of intensity again although I did in Mali and I'll talk about that in a little while but you know I, I needed to take a little bit of a break also personally um there were a lot of things happening in my life um and uh Dubai is uh, and, and South Sudan it's uh, also, I had a lot of, I'd gotten sick many, many times with malaria and typhoid um, because the UN base was built on a, a marshland. And so it attracted a lot more mosquitoes than if we had lived in other areas. It eventually was moved um, and built on another site. But these are the, some of the things that sometimes when um, peacekeeping operations open up in a country, they're not necessarily looking at or they don't have the possibility to have other spaces because the government really dictates where where the, the, the base is going to be. Um, and we know, we, we shared the, the life within a compound in peacekeeping is very particular. Um, we're all living together little by little, the containers come up, you know, we were intense at first and then, and then containers in, in extremely um, challenging situations at times. Um, I lived in a container for, and I'm talking about containers that, for those who don't know, they're like boat containers um, with a little AC inside. And if your AC breaks down, you basically can't sleep there because it's in metal. And so the heat is so intense that you would pretty much fry. So um, you end up going outside and, you know, at night there is, there are mosquitoes that are, that are more malaria mosquitoes. So I had, I had malaria, I don't know how many times Um, in total, I think I've had it 10 times, but uh, it was getting to be quite quite a lot, um, and the life there, you know, you 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 end up realizing that you're you're in your own bubble, right? There's a whole whole microcosm of the world in a peacekeeping operation, because 
people are working are we're all from different walks of life we come from very different countries um, and we're all working together with a purpose of either accompanying electoral processes or accompanying a peacekeeping process and we all have to figure out a way to communicate with each other get along get get over language barriers cultural differences and so on and so forth it's a very intense type of living environment which is actually why usually we have short rotations of six to eight weeks and then we go on vacation and we have to go on vacation it's not an option we have to leave the country for at least a week or two and then we come back um, it enables people to to also be able to breathe a little bit because it's so intense you work 24 hours a day basically right i mean you live and work in your work um, and you have shared bathrooms and and shared situations and uh, and uh, a tidbit of information it's years it's only at the end that i realized that if i could convince um the administration to let me build my own tiny bathroom next to my container that maybe i could reduce the um the, the number of times i was getting malaria and actually from the time i did that I, I did end up getting less malaria but um these are little facts that you learn while you're living in these in these particular constructs um and i ended up uh, um getting pregnant at the end of my time in Juba with my partner at the time. And uh, I couldn't, you know, continue living in, in South Sudan with, with the risk of malaria and wanting to have to, to start a family. Um, and that's the very reality of when you're a peacekeeper, when you're in peacekeeping and when you're in these kinds of lives. And at the same time, you're thinking about the fact that you want to have a family that, you know, as a woman in particular, well, you know, you get to the age where you're thinking, if I wait too long, it's not going to happen. And so it was a lot of thinking involved in that um, because I was very much, uh, you know, very, I, I was very much dedicated to the work I was doing. And I also knew that starting a family would change my life in terms of the possibilities that I could then have in working in war zones and conflict zones. But it comes to be a point where you decide what your priorities are. So I uh, ended up moving to Tunisia um, to work for the African Development Bank. Uh, and, uh, and that's where I had my, my child. Um, it's, um, so that was, a, that was an interesting moment of, of life, South Sudan. I, was, I always stayed very close to watching how things developed in South Sudan, what happened to the radio at the time. I told you that the conflict um, ignited again and, and what the radio station is still doing today to be able to to move on to the second phase um, of, of the evolution of the country with the youth really still extremely hopeful of the future for the future. Uh, and at the same time, it's very, very difficult. Um, refugee camps that you would have never imagined are there, um, the bases, the UN bases have been turned into refugee camps. Tensions are still very high. There's still a lot to be done in South Sudan in terms of development um, and in terms of the um, ensuring that communities have access to basic services and can go back on a piece of uh, on a path rather a path of, of construction and reconstruction of the future that they want. Um, so that was that was one experience, uh, mm -hmm. a very very poignant experience, which led me. You know, I like I said, I went to Tunisia for a while to work for the African Development Bank, and then. I was actually hired back in by the person who had um, hired me for the radio station in South Sudan. He asked me to come back to Mali. He had, he had moved to Mali and he had asked me to come to join the UN again um, in Mali to build the radio station to accompany that peace process that was 
um, being leveraged through the Algerian Accords, the, Alger, the uh, Algiers Accords. And so I did. And that was a, a whole different type of adventure and also a very unique one. But with many of the basic concepts that I've shared already, so I'm, I'm not going to repeat everything, but, you know, I, can't, I went there with my little baby who was nine months old at the time um, and decided to move to Bamako. Um, and I arrived in Bamako just as Ebola hit. And so that was a very, you know, hitting the ground running. Um, the radio station, of course, did not exist at all. So this was really coming in to, to build this. But in the meantime, I, I did very quickly end up mounting and working with, of course, many others in, in building a, a campaign on, on Ebola, Ebola awareness, and working with the specific Ebola um, mission that had been deployed to try to keep it under control in the region. So that gave us a very interesting start of, of, of life in Mali. Um, and Mali was a place that was ridden by conflict, but not only conflict, internal conflict, but because of the specific positioning of Mali in the Sahel, there was also a lot of jihadist movements that were taking place um, at the time, and jihadist recruitments, and many different um, terrorist cells and groups that were trying to be attached, smaller cells that were trying to attach themselves to the bigger cells of Daesh um, and of, of other other bigger terrorist groups and um, so it was it's a situation where peacekeeping had to also reinvent itself peacekeeping is, is about working within post-conflict situations whereas here there was clearly first of all still the conflict brewing and also a multi-dimensional um, situation that came on top of it um, which really was complex and is still very complicated for the UN to handle because there are a lot of tax attacks against the UN troops. I don't think there was a day that went by that I wasn't, um, you know, standing in front of a, a casket that was coming back from one area or another of peacekeepers who had been ambushed um, or, or community members or, you know, um, so it was a very complicated situation. The necessity to create a radio station in a country that where there was already many radio stations was a challenge in and of itself, where, again, like, like the story I tell you about Haiti, there was a lot of negotiations to actually get this radio station agreed upon by the UN as well as by the government. Um, I had to do, you know, confront myself with a lot of lobbies who did not want this radio station to get on there because they knew that it would be listened to. Uh, and I built this radio station differently than others, where I really, through a lot of analysis that I did with my with my colleagues, um, and uh, I realized the importance that it was to ensure that there were spaces dedicated to the different languages and different cultures on the same airwaves, and that it wasn't just going to be another radio um, broadcasting in Bambara, which is the, the national language, and in French to the communities, but it was going to be a reverse kind of communities broadcasting into the capital to be able to share what their particular concerns were as the, the peace process was being negotiated. And um, music, yes, just to tell you that story, because I'm not going to go on and on and on about these radios, but um, music was the, the way that we decided to actually implement the credibility of the radio station, of uh, this particular station, and it was to go to the the different communities across Mali 
look at the amazing richness of, of this of the Sahel region and their and the different instruments and the different voices and writing a song and and um, when I arrived you know for to build this it was just myself and the technical director uh, who started creating the concept of what this radio station was and, and we would sit there with a piece of paper and just dry it up and draw up what through the a lot of analysis that we've done of course with local communities what were the necessities and the programs and the importance of culture and music as a way to create um, peace building and um, we were able to connect different musicians across the country we wrote this song we wrote the words actually together of reuniting the country and then brought all musicians to, to to come together and write a different version of their song so with the different the different rhythms and their different music. So each community had a specific version of the same song with the same words, but in their languages. And then through a very crafty production agency in Bamako, um, we were able to bring all of these voices together and the different melodies into one, which became the international version of this song, which became the um, the song of the radio, right? The launch, the, th the theme of Mikado FM. And um, and at the same time, we were playing both the local versions, so the unique unique versions of the, of the different languages and cultures, and at the same time, the international one, which brought all of them together in one one unison. And this, um, when we were setting up the satellites, we were playing local music and local and you know local languages across the airwaves, and people for the first time realized that they were hearing their own music and their own language on a national airwave, and that hadn't happened, and that started the beginning of what was going to be this very powerful peace-building radio station. So. Culture and art are very much part of what we're talking about when we talk about dialogue and peace building. Um, a lot of things happened through the building of this radio station, including lobbying to create spaces and protected spaces for women to have an opportunity to weigh in politically into the peace agreements. Women who didn't have the opportunity or were not authorized normally to speak on on issues that were linked to politics. So there were, you know, there were a lot of lessons learned, of course, through that as well. That's so beautiful using art and music to unite not just different voices but different uh, different cultures and different languages is really really brilliant so when did you end up leaving Mali and and how did you end up with ifad so i ended up leaving Mali and uh, I, I set up the radio station and left a bit sooner than i thought i was going to leave again at the time there were a lot of tensions um and uh, i lived through the radisson attack um, which was in Bamako, and uh, and I, I was with my son, who was very young. So I, I ended up getting a job. Um, so I left in 2016 um, and and uh, was was named by the Secretary General Ban Ki-moon at the time to lead the UN Information Center for Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela. At the, and, and the reason was, and this links back to the story I told you earlier, the experience that I had had specifically working on in that particular context on the FARC or with the FARC rather um, and, uh, and and that in, in the Amazon and the you know the experience that I was bringing into to the table also having 
met and, and kept touch with um, the president of Ecuador at the time, Rafael Correa. So I was politically pretty well keyed into the area. And, um, and I, I assumed that that's why I got the position. Um, and, um, and ended up moving to Bogota with my son to accompany the, again, the peace, um, the peace building or the peace accords that were still in construct in Cuba with the negotiations happening in Cuba. So I arrived at a, at a quite an early stage. The UN Information Center is very different, right? It's it's a very different ambition, I guess, than than just or not just, but than 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 um, coming into a peacekeeping operation to build a radio. But really, it's the same kind of concept, which is I was the UN Information Center, and as a director, I was the spokesperson or the voice for this for from the UNHQ and for the Secretary General for that region. And um, it was extremely important to build the different spaces to get people to, 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 to ensure that people understood what the process was involved, um, where the process was at in terms of this uh, process of negotiation with the FARC, which was extremely difficult and extremely complicated. At the same time, there was an ambition to start moving the 2030 agenda. There are many other things that came in, into play here because the idea of these UN information centers is to share the common um, decisions of the Security Council in New York into and to bring those into the different communities and landscape and get populations engaged in moving these, uh, you know, engaged in these in these decisions and make them their own. And, you know, never have I come in or have I worked in contexts where you come in with solutions. That's not the point. It's sharing the information to get people governments, institutions, civil society, the youth, the women involved in the different um, constructs. So the SDGs and working on the on the 2030 agenda was very much at the heart of my work in, um, in the area at the same time as accompanying that process and at the same time as a, a very severe crisis ensued in Venezuela, which led to very um, strong migratory and refugee movement. So um, there was a lot of work involved on all of these fronts. Um, I worked on a, on a campaign specifically on, on the environment and creating the, the link between the necessity to address climate change, which was becoming more and more of a concern, climate change to conflict, to the different solutions, engaging the private sector. Uh, again, there's just so much to talk about, but, uh, but it, was, it was also a very different type of experience um, and very, very much it was a wonderful experience in how the youth really got involved in becoming the actors of change and the networks of youth that we created in these di in these different countries. How did you create these networks, networks of youth? Oh, well, we worked in different areas through the, through the academic circles and the schools, of course, doing a lot of um, advocacy on, on climate and on climate change, getting them involved in the different campaigns on Save Our Oceans, but getting them to also think about the 2030 agenda and how they would build their communities forward. Um, one of the unique, I can give you a, a very unique example, was when I was, um, again, I was traveling in, in the area regularly. Um, when I arrived in Quito, which is the capital of Ecuador, for a particular conference, um, which was uh, which is Habitat Three, which happens every three years, um, which is a conference to think about the future of our cities. The, 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 the thematic was the future of smart cities, uh, or how smart cities were going to integrate into Latin America. 
and creating that construct between imagining cities and, and the, the link to rural communities in the Andean region. Uh, and I was quite astounded to find that the youth were not involved, that this was about international you know, mayors and presidents from around the world coming to think about this in Quito. So Quito just happened to be the hub, but they didn't engage local populations. And I said, you know, and I thought this was, it was a missed opportunity to not get youth engagement into thinking about these topics and linking it to the sustainable development goals. And one night I decided to write to Lego out of all people um, in Denmark, the CEO, I found him on LinkedIn. I had no contact with them. And I wrote to LinkedIn, uh, to, to, to Lego rather, and I asked him, you know, could we build um, specific Lego sets so that kids could start building, we could train them to understand the sustainable development goals, and they could build their own platforms and their own constructs of how they saw their community shaping up to becoming closer to these, um, to these SDGs. And they actually responded, and we actually went into production on this. And, you know, again, a very long story, but we did end up getting these kids um, to train children. And, and during those, those uh, the initial launch of this, trained thousands of kids who were coming in by buses around the conference to, to start thinking about the, the SDGs. And Ecuador had just been shaken by a very powerful earthquake, so there was a lot of rebuilding to do. And they started actually building. It was amazing to see how quickly little kids understood the SDGs quicker than the older ones, quicker than the adults, and started building their platforms. And from that, I evolved the concept into, you know, then I, 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 we launched this in Colombia and in the most vulnerable areas in, Lake, in, in, um, in game libraries in the most vulnerable communities where kids were actually building the future that they wanted and bringing in, and then I linked in the private sector to actually see whether they could construct in real what these children were constructing through these Lego platforms, and it happened. And that created a whole network of youth engagement. And the, the, the resilience and the brilliance that these kids had to, even if with very little internet connection, to be able to start creating blogs and photos of their projects and their world, and it really had a domino effect. And I really do think that the importance of this ripple effect, that when you work with local, local ideas and, and, and communities that you don't imagine the impact and the ripple effect that it can have across across a, a community, across a region, across a nation, across the world. Um, and I think that that's the beauty of what I learned through all of the stories that I've told is the importance of going back to the people, the people behind, you know, behind our, our humanity. Every, every child, every every community has an amazing capacity to think about its future and about um, the solutions. And we, it, solutions cannot just be given. They need to engage the, 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 the people themselves so that they are then building their own sustainability. Absolutely. And I love hearing, I'm, I'm glad everyone got to hear that story of your gumption and creativity in reaching out to Lego to bring in the resources, but also then using that to engage kids and connecting with the game libraries to bring the solutions, not the solutions rather, bring the tools for them to create their own solutions to the spaces that they were already occupying. Thought all that was extraordinarily creative and wonderful to hear. 
I'd love to move on to EFAD where you're currently at and, and hear a bit of how you ended up coming to work at EFAD and, and tell us a bit about what you're doing right now in your role as a director there. Yeah, so I'm I'm um, directing the global communications and advocacy for the International Fund for Agricultural Development, which um, is based in Rome, and which kind of seemed like the next natural step in that its core mandate is really to address um, how to leave no one behind, the last mile of reaching the most rural and remote communities across the world and engaging them in, in solutions to um, strengthen their capacity to contribute to rural economies, therefore circular economies. Uh, you know, if the world has really worked and tried to come together on addressing global challenges, it may not have worked as well as or as fast as we had hoped. Um, and that's because it's a living, it's, it's an experience of, of winning and losing it's a it's an experience of life every day of realizing which ways you're going that are correct or not correct and if today despite all of the efforts that are being done we still have more conflicts we still have you know tremendous issues that we have to deal with such as feeding the world such as making sure that people have access to basic necessities the realization i think through these you know 76 years of diplomacy since the un was born right after the, the world war ii i think has been realizing that if we don't put people into the solutions like i've just said we're not going to move forward so it's wonderful to have you know member states engaged in looking for solutions together and government and high level government discussions and so on and so forth but why did the high level governments come to this dis this decision of the 2030 agenda and of these 16 sustainable development goals, it is because there was a core realization that if we don't go back to address the basic necessities of humanity, we won't move forward. And the basic necessities of all of us, regardless of where we come from, is that. It's, it's uh, getting out of poverty, it's accessing water, accessing food, accessing shelter, accessing education, and health, um, innovation to be able to move forward, technology to be able to support us in our ideas and ambitions of growth. It's alliances to be able to work, uh, you know, nobody can work alone. Alliances are key to be able to move anything forward. Um, addressing the climate challenges, which are extremely important, saving our oceans. Uh, that's what the sustainable development goals are all about. And there is this, there's this realization um, and again, the fact that this has been voted on by the 193 member states is a big deal because getting countries from all these different types of social economic constructs and different realities to decide on something common is very complex. Um, and so that's, you know, that the world, the fact that the world has become united to work on this is important. And out of that really came the... I think is now much higher on global agendas than ever before is starting to focus on going back to the roots of our systems and that is the rural communities the rural communities are, are responsible for feeding us for feeding the world um and yet they themselves often don't feed themselves so they may feed us but they often don't feed themselves 
you know, the women who are actually working the land in a lot of remote communities around the world don't have land rights. There are a lot of unknown stories from rural communities who are supporting us in our day-to-day humanity that are not being told. And it is time to go and look at a lot more and fund a lot more and be a lot more innovative in terms of how do we bring rural communities into our daily realities. It's not because we're talking about farming and that we're sitting in a city that it doesn't um, it doesn't touch us. Actually, it does. You eat every day. Therefore, you know, think about those who are growing that food. Um, and, and so that's where the narrative is extremely important because the only way we're going to create mass engagement and interest in this is to be able to go back to what does this matter to me or to you or to, you know, Daniel who's in uh, listening to this or to Pat or to Bright or to Kate, you know, why does this matter to us? And it, it matters because it's part of our daily life, um, whether we, we realize it or not. And so it's extremely important. This is where, again, I go back to the importance of information and communication is that we use it for a purpose, that we use it to really create those constructs um, and, and, and really share this importance of the domino effect. IFAD has a particular advantage today is that it's a very hybrid agency. It's a, it's a hybrid agency that is, has a niche expertise and hybrid meaning that it's both a UN development agency and at the same time it's an international financial institution similar to the world bank similar to the african development bank um, and so on and the fact that it wears both hats means that it has the capacity through its local partners to actually fund long-term projects long-term rural development and if we don't start shifting the paradigm to long term we're constantly going to be in a circle of aid so you're, you're, you're funding short-term projects to address a very specific problem. And then that ends. And then you go back to actually still needing to, to mend that need or that gap. And so you're going into a cycle of aid, need, aid, need. And I think that the only way to move forward from that is to start looking long-term. Because if you don't create long-term funding to be able to then include in that training, education, and self-sustainability, then how do you support people into actually mending those needs or mending those gaps that will enable them to then move forward without having the necessity for that aid. And so today we're seeing a paradigm shift. And I hope that that will come out at the end of this year when we are all, you know, discussing food systems as the world is now engaged on thinking about how do we strengthen our food systems. And there's this huge UN summit in September. Um, But, you know, a summit is just a summit. Um, not to not to say that it's not good, but it, it's all of the work that is being done around it and the narrative and the awareness that needs to be that, that we need to create alliances to address this in a much more sustainable way. I think that's what's important. So that's why I ended up um, with, with EFAD is to be able to to make sure that that narrative really um, crosses borders. Mm-hmm. Can you give us um, an example of the kinds of long-term investments or investments in long-term development projects that EFAD makes? Oh, well, there's, there's so many um, that uh, it's, uh, they're in in different countries, you know, you work with obviously um, rural communities and farmers and smallhold agricultures, as well as looking at what that means um, to be able to take smallholder farmers into a, a more viable type of pathway. So, 
working with them on the particular agricultural methods, addressing climate change and the impact that it has, bringing in technical expertise to see how they can become more sustainable, but also enter the market and economic markets to be able to leverage what they're growing. Um, looking at also the way that they're growing and um, the you know the environmental concerns regarding that as well. Um, looking at biodiversity, um, you know, there's a lot of thinking that goes into this right now. The world is usually concentrated on four crops, or has been concentrated on four crops, and the, that is not diverse enough to address some of the issues that are dealing that are that, that we're dealing with when we talk about healthy environment and healthy nutrition and addressing climate change and so we need to diversify our crops so there's a lot of projects that are being developed in terms of crop diversification but also you know some of the things some of the, the particular expertise is how do you use modern technology today technology information technology such as the phones that we have in our hands right now to be able to support farmers um, as they as they move forward and using you know creating those links between the, the specific farmers and the specific technology that is going to help them be more sustainable and more resilient, creating networks of rural communities to support each other as well. So there there are many many different um, examples. You know, there's a beautiful example of a work uh, project that was done in uh, in Tunisia with women who had, and this was a very interesting social story as well, um, divorced women who had not been very well accepted because of their status in Tunisia and who had decided to go off um, in the remote fields of, of Tunisia and start planting tomatoes uh, because it was a very fertile area for tomatoes to try to sustain themselves and create a new type of community where they helped each other with uh, their, their, their children and and um, helped each other deal with their, their particular situation of being divorcees in a country that didn't accept it. And a project um, was funded to support them in creating a link between their tomato growing and, and the production chain. Um, and their tomatoes are now being used for Heinz ketchup. They're being used for Brutoni, you know, um, pasta sauce. And uh, they, they've become very successful and therefore have also their success has also helped bear, strengthen their community and, the, and their region and their country. That's just one very small example of, of a story that I found impactful. But, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into working in those last, in, in the most remote areas. Right now, we are starting to explore with EFAD um, projects in South Sudan, which had been put on hold because of the, the security situations. And yet, EFAD does is present even in the most difficult areas and even in the conflict zone. It's probably one, because it works through local partners, it's probably one of the agencies that doesn't have to leave um, in, in, in very high conflict zones. Um, but um, in South Sudan, there's a lot to be done with aquaculture and fisheries um, and, and supporting them in developing that industry as, as, as many others. Uh, you know, if we help... Uh, you know, Africa, Africa is extremely rich and extremely fertile, for instance, if we're looking at the African continent, and we work across the world, right, Latin America and Asia and the Middle East. So, but just um, going back to Africa is so rich, and there is so much so many possibilities and populations are our rural populations are extremely resilient, and they have the capacity to feed the world, you know, 
it is not normal today that we that that people still go hungry don't have access to 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 food uh, the world you know and we need we, we all have a responsibility in terms of in our different different areas and different contexts to address this issue in one way or another absolutely um so in your role as director of communications and advocacy what what do you uh, end up spending most of your time focused on Well, you know, I manage a, I manage a, a large division, or I direct a large division. So I'm working on um, managing teams to make sure that those stories are, are well told, that we work a lot on advocacy, but we also work, of course, at, at my level also on the political advocacy, which is making sure that these, these stories and these projects and the relevance and our, our true capacity to deliver is well communicated to the member states so that we have the engagement of the member states um, and our, our and our donors and our stakeholders to move forward you know the clear ambition of the of efad today is to double its impact by 2030 so that we can address many of the areas that are not being you know being currently supported um, and for that of course you need funding and for that you need support um, and so there, that's a lot of the work of course that's being done from a capital point of view or from a headquarters point of view versus when you're working on the field which is very it's a very different reality um and uh i'm looking at new and innovative platforms where we can spread these kinds of stories give a voice to the most rural uh, remote rural populations um, we're going to be launching soon a campaign on rural voices with this specific hashtag um, for that to make sure that they are engaged in solutions um, and can also talk about their own realities and and their their stories. Um, we you know we we published a book earlier this year called The People Behind Your Plate, which is basically about that. It's it's very graphic. It's photo it's photography to get you engaged into their realities. Um, you know it's their it's their story, and um, seeing how it connects to to everybody around the world, I think, is extremely important. Absolutely. I want to be conscious of your time, but before we move on, I'd love to hear what would a blue sky, if things go perfectly from EFAD's work over the next five to 10 years, what would you see happening in the world? How would that translate? Well, I think it's beyond EFAD's work. I think it's, um, you know, bringing, bringing the different constructs together, um, making sure that communities that as we move forward we have a much more solid people-based engagement process that we use these modern technologies to actually leverage solutions from the ground up that yes it's extremely important to continue also with advocating and getting governments to to put these you know the sdgs on the top of their agendas and looking at ways to address you know human rights to address um, climate change to address gender-based violence is one of the you know uh, the, the the SDG five um, is gender to to move the world towards a more equitable um, society economically socially and so on. But I think that the way to really truly move the needle on this is also by creating much stronger basis of of uh, population engagements and going back to the micro local. You know, people in their communities have the capacity to move things, and these it matters. 
you know, a lot of people say, well, it doesn't matter. But, you know, my, my action isn't going to create a th- uh, it's not going to change the world. But actually think of my action plus my action plus my action, multiply it by everybody in the world, and it does actually make a difference. And I always use, you know, COVID as the example of the lockdown. When we almost the entire world went into lockdown, the earth around us changed. The world, you know, the, the earth and the environment um the skies went blue talking about blue skies fish came back into areas that they had never had we hadn't seen in in long times right in in paris in the in the river seine um in uh, venice and and around the world everybody saw the earth change and rebirth and so yes of course you know common action does matter because it it, it compounds one to the other to the other what I'd like to see is that conscious collectiveness and the, the, the a, a renewed belief in our own possibilities in making a change and making a difference. And I know sometimes that sounds, you know, uh, idealistic, but idealism is necessary. Um, and but but it is actually backed by real data that showcases that yes, it does make a difference, and that we are responsible for shaping our communities for relooking at. Uh, moving our, our, you know, educational constructs, starting to use new platforms to address some of the fundamental changes that need to happen in education processes so that the youth actually, for them, it becomes natural to make the right choices or to make healthier choices for their lives, but also for the lives of their communities and their future within the in the necessities of addressing climate change, of addressing, you know, the, the wonderful, but also the dangerous of technology and so on and so forth. So that's really, you know, the importance of communication and information, um, caring about that, funding it a lot more than it is today, because that is what leads and shapes the minds and hearts of the future, I think is is something that I'd like to see happen. Um, and one, one topic we didn't really touch upon, and I think that will be for a different time, but, you know, as we've been through all, as I've lived through all of these different experiences in different countries, and as we've just gone through COVID, you know, one of the, one of the issues that really we do need to fundamentally address is gender-based violence. Um, the silent pandemic, the UN called it. The, the 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 silent pandemic because it was happening at the same time as COVID was happening, and it became much more of a common a public narrative, not common, but a public narrative, that you know gender-based violence affects one in three women around the world, everywhere. Whether you come, you know, d- d- regardless of what community or what level you come from, or or, or the, you know, um, it, it it affects everybody. And I think that that is something that also needs to fundamentally be addressed because this equity, um, this 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 world can only be shaped if we all have a chance, and um, that includes men and women, um, it includes boys and girls, and we do again have the capacity to move the needle forward on that. And it starts with education. It starts with rethinking how we educate our children moving forward on this and then also make sure that these stories don't stay silent because we need to rethink our constructs when it comes to the legal mechanisms in place the protective mechanisms in place for for victims of violence and i'm not going to say just women because it's not just women 
victims of violence to efficiently put an end to violence, to be able to actually say no and move from advocacy to solutions. Um, and this impacts what we were talking about, rural communities. It is at the roots of conflicts and war. It is at the roots of hunger and famine. It is the roots of our society. And it is it does also need to be addressed fundamentally. Absolutely. Um... You know, I think, as you said, we could have a kind of extensive discussion uh, just on this. Um, before, uh, I do want to be mindful of, of your time, but um, can you tell us a bit about how you saw uh, gender-based violence playing out in in some of these rural communities um, where, I mean, we, we know it's everywhere, but how, how did it play out in, in some of your kind of peacekeeping experiences and then what do you think um, the the quickest not you know not that it's a, a quick fix but what are some of the dynamics rather that um, <clears throat> contribute to it uh, whether it be specific to a geography or across the world well you know I mean um I, I saw it play out in very different areas in different ways, you know, uh, going back to the peacekeeping um, and to the, to the experiences I had in these different countries um, across, uh, across Africa, notably, but also, also in the, yeah, in, in different areas. Um, but in, in these countries where I worked, um, because I'm not going to speak for all the, you know, the, the, the necessity to create safe spaces for women to actually have a political voice and to be able to participate in in that and and be able to actually enter uh, the job market, um, actually have access and, and for their families or for their partners or for their husbands to understand the fact that they did want to work, that they wanted to become journalists, that they wanted to be able to speak, that they could actually also lead programs on politics and have an important um, impact in those in those narratives that was extremely challenging and um, women you know I had staff who were beaten killed um, jailed um, for 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 wanting to have that space uh, and a lot of it has to do again with education you know I I was out on um, in, in uh, Juba at one point around the electoral process with my teams uh, a, a group of women actually who were journalists and who had braved all of these these um, challenges to become journalists at the at Radio Mariah and um, the security saw us arriving the security the in the city saw us arriving and they did not like to see women with microphones not first of all they had an issue with information and um, it was out of out of you know um, um, these uh, these uh, war contacts and conflictual contacts information is often feared. That's a whole other other issue that we didn't uh, that we can talk about one day. But the um, the fact of being women, you know, they they beat us up, they kicked us to the ground. It was you know you women, you should not be here, and that violence is pervasive um, in, in in wanting to create those spaces. So. You know, and, and this happened in many different contexts. Um, you know, myself as a woman, having been, a, a, when I go back to many to those many years ago of being a, a war correspondent and in certain areas where people were not used to seeing a woman 
doing this kind of job and wondering what I was doing. Why was I not home taking care of children? You know, was I married? Was I not? And how, you know, what was I doing? Um, it, it's, uh, it's challenging because we're, go we're facing cultural differences, cultural uh, barriers. And again, I don't ever want to judge. I just think that we need to move forward and have constructive dialogues and discussions to address this. Um, violence uh, in Colombia, in Ecuador, in, in Latin America, and especially, you know, everywhere. I'm not going to say especially, but in the different communities where I started speaking a lot in international forums on gender-based violence and and women who were trying to address this and figure out how to move out of violence but not have the constructs to deal with it, the legal constructs, the proper constructs. You know, we have international frameworks that have advanced tremendously to address these issues. And we have even at a constitutional level, level laws that speak to this. But then when it comes to the practice, that's a whole different reality. Um, it's, you know, situations drag on and on and on. And I haven't spoken to any woman who has had to denounce violence and who hasn't said they regret having denounced it through the uh, official, you know, channels. The authoritative channels, the police, the the, the lawyers, the, the judicial processes, because it's been such a harrowing experience, because it's so long, because it drags on, because they do um, find themselves in very, very uh, delicate situations. You know, a lot of women um, who unfortunately uh, are, are killed after denouncing violence. Usually, they're killed after after they've denounced. Um, statistically speaking, feminicides have gone up across the world in tremendous rates, um, especially during this COVID lockdown. There is something that needs to be addressed in terms of what are the mechanisms to to support a, a shift while we also address root causes, which is education. And again, this is not a conversation that should uh, create a divide of women against men or men against women. That's not what the issue is here. We need to rethink about the constructs of our society that leads this type of violence to happen. Uh, and that, that really is about reshaping the narratives or, you know, and valuing each and every one of us as we, as we move forward and grow into these countries and societies. Beautifully said. Just want to get a few, few final questions in before, if you have time, uh, we open it up to, to some of the folks here for, for a few short ones. Yeah, sure. As those of us who've been here for some time have gotten here, you've, you've got an incredible wealth of experience in so many different situations and environments. What are some principles of conflict resolution, if you could sum them up, that you would share for us all to take away? I think it's listening, um, listening and creating spaces for dialogue and breaking down the misconceptions and understanding the unconscious biases. You know, we talk about this and I think sometimes people roll their eyes because they, you know, it just kind of feels like a throwaway type of word, but we all have unconscious biases. We all have, uh, we all go back to our comfort zones when we feel fear, when we feel um, angst, when we are concerned about our survival tomorrow, whatever that means, you know, it can be within an organization where you don't get along with somebody and, uh, and, and therefore it actually hits on that, that 
fiber of the fear of your tomorrow, um, that survival instincts of, of fighting for your own space uh, or for your truth. You know, when we realize, and we all do it, I, you know, I'm talking about it, but you know, I'm the first one that falls into this. We, it's it's human nature, right, to go back to to what is most familiar, and then to address what is not, what you don't understand, or or anger, or that is thrown at you through fear, and then and then and then that ensues uh, leads to conflict. So, these are human lessons, um, I think, that are important, and um, I think that's the main. I think that's the fundamental is that as we move forward, the recognition, this fundamental recognition of the need for um, our own um, acknowledgement is important to address any types of solutions that we're going to move the world forward on. Um, the importance of going back to people and the engagement of people as the at the root of processes. Yes, processes are extremely important, but we, we have to go back to the people and to people-based engagement and the belief of um, these networks that are being created to be able to push for, for a better, you know, for a better tomorrow and a stronger tomorrow and address the root causes of, of conflict, of climate change, um, and so on. Right on. Listening and empathy are, and, you know, seeing other people as human and, and understanding them and, and, yourself are seem seem fundamental if you could share quickly how how do you feel we I mean you've, you've spoken to education you've spoken to communication versus information is there anything else you'd say on how we change cultures we change cultures by getting to know each other by being aware of each other um, we change cultures by examining ourselves um, we change cultures in that way i think in, in going back to what you know what matters to each and every one of us and how actually really could think, realizing that what matters around across across and very far from me actually the um, domino effect that it has that will affect me um going back to that the the the, the reason that we are actually coming together through these different platforms, um, through a lot of new constructs that have taken place in terms of creating these this, these, these dialogues and people-based engagement is because there is a necessity for us to, to exchange ideas as well as solutions moving forward and to believe in that um, as a true fundamental of the you know, and again, I don't want to sound cliche, but of the yes, we can. And I think that that, why did that resonate so much in politics at one point um, is because it goes back to that core fiber of people's wanting to believe that yes, they can, yes, they matter. Uh, and I think that's extremely important. Right on. Um, and finally, uh, and maybe we'll just take uh, one or two questions for if if that's okay for those uh, yeah. who would that's like. Um, so feel free to put your hand up. But um, while while folks are doing so, uh, what are the biggest challenges or areas of concern for you, and what are the uh, areas that give you the most inspiration and hope? Um, I think that uh, what gives me 
you know, I think that the, a lot of the challenges are um, addressing some of the, the misinformation, the misconstruction that leads to tensions. I think it's very challenging. We can talk about the importance of it. We can talk about what we need to do to address it, but actually um, shifting that, that global narrative, addressing tensions um, and conflicts, uh, addressing addressing disinformation that fuels um, conflicts, going to the root causes, because healing of, you know, healing is difficult when you've been offended. And I'm talking about either whether it's a personal offense or whether you're in the context of, of, uh, of conflicts or country-based conflicts or racism or hate speech or, you know, extreme to be able to take the steps forward from that. And it doesn't mean forgetting. I mean, reconciliation with the other doesn't mean forgetting. It doesn't mean erasing what has been done in the past. And I think that's really important to understand. It doesn't mean erasing the wrongs that have been done. But it also means believing that if you don't take those steps forward in, in, in wanting to weave and to create a new unity, a new future, um, with the other that may have done you harm, then it will be very difficult for societies to move forward at any level. And I think that that's something that we need to to engage on and to believe in and to move on as ourselves as people and then create this in terms of communities and societies. And that also needs to be taught in schools. And I think that we really also need to reshape our educations, uh, the methodologies that are used to educate to be able to take in these real constructs that are needed for the future. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not just about learning math and science and, and reading and writing and grammar and all these wonderful things. It's also about how do we live more constructively in societies. And I don't think that that's something that's necessarily sufficiently addressed within a traditional educational constructs. Um, and, and, and in terms of the future and the hope, there's a lot of hope that I have because I see how much people are engaged. I think there is a belief and, and a much stronger recognition that we do need to unite to address these challenges that are facing it, you know, and that the technology that, as, as I've pointed out, is risky is also allowing us to actually connect with each other. You know, I'm sitting here in Rome, you're sitting in Toronto, people listening may be sitting in other parts of the world. We have this capacity to connect now beyond borders to actually move these these ideas forward. Beautiful, thank you. Had a few folks who wanted to come up and share. Charles, why don't you go first? Uh, thank you, uh, Elliot and Helen. Always and 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 this time particularly, that Ellen has asked or Elliot has asked some great questions and given you the opportunity to to share. But I had a specific question about radio. As you know, uh, Suki222 is, is trying to help and get the word out. What would it cost, or, or does it cost, the nonprofit to, 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 to broadcast? And, and how many people are, are available to reach through that network? Um, you know, that's, that's a bit of a, of a wide question because... Um, you know, radio has evolved a lot. So I'm giving you specific examples of these peacekeeping radios that were built 
uh, through satellite technology. These are, this is, it is very expensive to be able to broadcast on FM waves and to be able to have all of the constructs that are involved. It's not that expensive, but it's, it's expensive. Um, and, but technology has moved so far ahead now that through, look, look, I mean, what we're doing right now is almost like radio broadcasting, right? So um, creating networks of communication are a lot simpler in that way than they used to be. Right, but I, yes, I, well, no question in Clubhouse is, is, is only going to, to take more of that share very shortly, but it, it, are, is the UN stations that are set up and operating today, can nonprofits go on and say, hey, here's something that's good for your community? Is, is there a network to, to be heard for nonprofits operating in the areas that, yeah. that are? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, these radio stations are like news and information public radio stations. So we know that there's a lot of programs that are being done on, on innovation, on solutions, on um, bringing the voice to other organizations and other even, you know, people-based engagements that are, that are being um, leveraged in these particular areas. So, of course, there's space for it. Um, like, it's, it's a media you know, media type construct. So it's bringing the awareness and then, and then making sure that they cover it. Awesome. We'll try to make it interesting. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So we have uh, Vincent's friend, Eric. Eric, welcome to Hello. Clubhouse. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm completely new uh, first talk, but um, yeah, what I'm really curious about since uh, you're, yeah, the kind of place you places you've worked in. Um, I look at social change methodologies, and some of them are like uh, facilitation methods, like nonviolent communication, process work, deep democracy, restorative circles. There's all these methodologies that they intend to create systemic change as well, and certainly also in conflict. Is there? For instance, within the UN and these bigger organizations, is there an, a lot of awareness around it enough? And do these methods work? Could they work? Could they work better? Uh, I don't know if that's a clear enough question. You're asking if whether there is enough awareness of all of these different programs, you mean? Yeah, they're, they're facilitation methods that are, there are thousands of trainers doing these kind of methods all over the world on and they're all kind of communication, uh, group dynamic uh, methods. And I wonder if, if there's an awareness within the UN about them and if they work or not, if that's if it's something that's been evolved or not. Within yeah, I think that, yeah, I understand um, that really awareness of the fact that they work, you know, these peacekeeping radios have evolved over the years. They're not just in the countries that I've spoken about, you know, there's a very, very uh, famous radio that was kind of the the, uh, the launch of this particular model, Radio Guppy in Congo, and so on. But I think that there needs to be a lot more awareness on the outside of these lessons that we've learned, I think, through peace building, through, through peacekeeping, through um, these different kind of community engagement methods that we apply. It's not just through radio, but a lot of community engagement that is being done um, across the world. Um, that I think would merit being shared a lot more. And that's kind of why I'm doing this is, um, 
to be able to share those experiences because those experiences match a lot of the things that can be done uh, anywhere we are in the world um, at a community level. I don't know if that answers your question. Well, kind of uh, part of it, I I am really wondering like what needs to exist. I, I, I fully see the value of a radio station. I also heard like a John Marks, I guess is his name. He created a, a football um, uh, uh, it's a it's a show, a TV show on football and it, it passes up through different countries and it's also about conflict. So they deal with issues like uh, diversity and stuff like that. And, and it really works. It, it, it reaches a big audience. So it helps spread the word better. I guess this on these methodologies, I guess also there needs to be a collected clarity on what it is because one method doesn't know about the other method. And I guess, you know, a lot of methods I never heard of, and I might know a lot of methods you never heard of. And I wonder how to better share this and how to better create a world where people know about these methods. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think that, yeah, yeah there inclusion programs um, you, through through sports and uh, through programs that can create that that um, extremely strong impact. I think you know you've touched upon something very important, which I didn't have time to get to, but it's the importance of using global and mass media to be able to share these experiences um, and to create networks of change through that. You know, right now. We're looking at developing a program of actors of change for the SDGs with some major networks, um, looking at the idea of creating, you know, of, of de- de- designing new types of sitcoms, I think, um, through fiction um, and uh, through, you know, through Netflix and getting, you know, gamification that I think really needs to be used to be able to leverage these kinds of changes in social constructions that we're talking about. Gaming is extremely um, powerful amongst the youth. So how do we get those involved in creating games that are actually for the social good um, and and creating games around the sustainable development goals? Um, and there's a lot of, I think, untapped opportunities um, to be able to showcase this at a much broader level that I think we need to push on. Obviously, the ma- you know mass media, films, Hollywood, and so on are... Um, are ways to, to create major changes within societies. Um, and they have a tremendous impact. So I think that is a way that needs to be, uh, something that needs to be explored a lot more. There are groups and um, production companies that are starting to be interested in telling those stories and sharing that a, a lot further than, than it is being shared today to break away and to break down those silos. And I think that's extremely necessary. And you're right. I don't think that it's there enough. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Enough for now since the time is passing. Thank you for your answer. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. So uh, we are almost an hour over what we had expected. So I, I brought Kate up because she, she has some quite relevant experience. Uh, are you okay with one more question before we wrap? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if there are other people who waited extremely patiently while we were having this very long conversation, so I would um, invite other people also if they have 
comments or questions. I think that's that's what's interesting as well. Okay, just want to. I know it's getting late there, so I just want to be uh, be conscious of that. But Kate, welcome. Thank you very much, um, Elia and Helene. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and insight. I could listen to you all day. Bye. Um, I did have uh, two questions. One was actually just coming off of what Eric had mentioned. Um, and that was, so the first question is, why has there been a delay in media, specifically in TV and streaming services, and getting these narratives to a broader audience? What's been the holdup as you see it? I think maybe it's a lack of uh, basic awareness. Also, a lack of thinking get enough engagement get enough audiences you know the the media world is is uh has shifted um a lot in terms of making money as you know especially in the in first world contexts and constructs um and um what what gets what gets them ratings so i think the concern for ratings and the concern for immediacy and uh has kind of put a put a stop to the more in-depth type of narratives and the the, the stronger stories um, that need to be shared and told. So I think that that's why there's a lot of independent networks that are starting to come up to actually give a space to this. Um, you know, the world of news and information and media has changed a lot. Uh, it's gotten a lot more people don't have the necessarily the patience uh, as you have you know here today to listen to stories uh, or time it's not even just a question of patience but it's also a question of time and as you see people navigate very very quickly now right um, they go from you know 100 character tweets to a small snippet on uh, through Instagram the consumption of news and information has changed so how do we get these kinds of lessons? learned and sharing of stories through that i think that's something that's still very difficult to 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 bring an answer to because it needs time to talk we need time to have these kinds of conversations and to share but if people want everything to be in tidbits of information that are 30 seconds 50 seconds it, it's it's difficult i was talking to um i'm doing right now a series of of uh bilateral discussions on on what communications needs to to um, address to move the needle on the SDGs, for instance. And one particular member state I was having a conversation with was saying that they had talked to their child who, you know, this woman ambassador would, had talked to her child about EFAD. And of course they didn't know what EFAD was because we are a very specialized agency, but she said, you know, they address climate change. And he said, oh, I'm really interested in that. And she said, well, how would you want to get more information from what they do on climate change? And he said, well, if I could watch a really short YouTube video or some type of meme on Instagram or something like that. But, you know, the, the way that we consume information has changed. So how do we create that middle ground or how do we bring the two realities together to be able to, to address this and, sh and share these ideas and concepts? Um, I think it's something that is still being defined right now. Thank you. And that, that partially answered my second question, which was um, 
how have you seen in your experience, how have you seen communication and journalism specifically, um, war correspondence, how have you seen that information and that narrative change over the years in terms of the coverage? Is there anything missing and that, that you'd like to see overcome or corrected either in the methodology or the content? Yeah, um, I would. I would like to be able to go back to a time where you know journalists have the time to actually get to know the stories and the context. They have the time to go and develop and understand what they're talking about and what they're reporting on. Um, there's less and less of that, unfortunately. It, a, a lot of it is now going through a few wires, you know, the APs and the AFPs and the Reuters and so on, which are very important. But, you know, then the, then the coverage goes through um, those few lines, those few people that are on the field reporting back through these wires that journalists are using to tell these stories. But that's not real. That's not lived journalism, right? Um, and so, therefore, it loses a lot of the stories that it could tell. It loses the space to be able to actually spend time to know about the communities you're reporting on. Uh, you know, in South Sudan, when we... Um, were there for the for the referendum for independence, for instance, you know, journalists from around the world flooded in just for the referendum process. Did they really know about South Sudan or the South Sudanese? No. Did they really understand what had led to this this decision for independence? Who these people were? It's you know too easy to just fly in and turn on the camera and just say I'm live here, you know from. South Sudan, uh, as it is, you know, the, the newest country is about to declare itself and so on and so forth. It's easy to create that narrative, but what's behind it? Because the stories behind it is what really will shape the world going forward. Um, and if we don't tell the stories, and again, if we don't take the time to do that, we, we won't be addressing the real issues that'll help us move forward. So we need to go back to that. Um, and we need to, I think, retrain the, the, the consumption of, of news and information. And again, and I said this earlier, we also really need to address the difference between communication and information and go back to the roots of information. The roots of information being the fact that it, um, information needs to support people into understanding the world they live in, making better choices, having access to, to um, education that will enable them to live better or to live stronger, which is very different than communicating between each other and sharing thoughts and opinions, which is also equally important. But, you know, I think that information needs to be salvaged and it's, uh, it's at the ethical spaces and the importance that it has in constructing societies is losing itself. And I think that that is going to be a very strong challenge as we move forward. Thank you very much, Helene. You're welcome. Steve, welcome. Hi, Elliot. Hi, Helene, everybody. Um, yeah, so I, I heard, I didn't hear the beginning of this, but uh, what I heard was amazing. Uh, but I, I just want to ask, uh, Helene, have you come across someone called Fadaus Karras uh, of something called Choc Moose Media? Um, just a bit of background. He, he's. Um, uh, a creator of animated video shorts that have been seen over a billion times, uh, something like 400 um, uh, languages, close to 200 countries, and about over 400 separate uh, um, 
uh, animations, all to do with everything from Zika virus, Ebola. Um, uh, he many years ago he created a series of uh, short videos to do with uh, I think they were called uh, Buzz and Bite to do with malaria, and um, I think it was the Three Amigos to do with uh, uh, HIV. And these are all focused on behavior change uh, in the language, um, culturally acceptable, and just really amazing. And, and his model is um, he's created this content funded sometimes through agencies, sometimes through donors or sponsors, and given it out to the NGOs who have got it out to the people who have needed to see them. And um, he's been um, recognized uh, um, for... Uh, I think uh, preventing over a million deaths around HIV many, many years ago and uh, has really been a big part in, in changing behavior. So I just wonder what you think of this methodology and, and if you come across it. No, I, I'm not aware of that particular methodology. I have um, been aware of other other types of similar, similar type of uh, media expressions, but not this one. Yeah, It'd be it, really it, interesting knowing more about it. Yeah, I mean, it is remarkable. It is Chock Moose Media, Chocolate Moose Media, but the website, I think, is chockmoose.com or something. But uh, very happy to introduce you. But you know, I, I would echo what you're saying before. We need to explore all medias and, and especially gamification to, um, uh, to, to help people, you know, understand what they've got to do and, uh, and you know, co-collaborate in their futures. It's really, really important. So thanks for this, Elliot and Helen. Thanks for setting it up. It's been amazing. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. Absolutely. Uh, using media, using film, as, as Helen spoke to, and even gamification, it makes it accessible to the average person. I think, as, as you've spoken to Helen, we need, we need things that we need to be able to reach quite broadly. And, and as you pointed out, folks often just don't have the time to listen, let alone the patience. And so finding ways to communicate these ideas and store and share these stories in, in forms that are uh, digestible or appropriate for where they're at become the new listening to the local voice, so to speak. But wanted to give uh, folks in the audience one last chance to come on up if there's anyone who did want to share. But maybe final question is, again, you've, you've got such, and I really appreciate you being here and taking all this time and sharing the real like incredible wealth of experience you've you've had is there something you could sum up uh... that's a big question elliot <laughs> <laughs> um you know i i think i'm just you know i'm one person who can't uh you know I, i'm the last person to have you know these big big uh thoughts of wisdom because i think we're all we all have a unique approach and understanding of what moves the world forward but i think from my my personal experience, um, the core fundamental, and I think I said that earlier, but the core fundamental that we need to address as societies is the importance of leaving no one behind um, and ensuring that there is respect and dignity um, and that, that people are acknowledged and recognized. Um, anywhere around the world because the fundamental necessity to be heard and to be, you know, to be recognized is the first step to then recognizing the other. If you don't feel recognized, if you don't feel that you are, that you matter to, to, to the world that you live in and that you're born into, then how can 
anyone expect you to listen to the others who are telling you, you know, perhaps what is what is um, the direction to take or solutions that are available. So I think that that's extremely important. I, I always go back to something very fundamental is that when a child is born, you know, he comes in, he, she comes into the world crying and that the first necessity crying, yes, because it's, you know, painful um, to, to take that first breath, but it's also the fact of, 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 of shouting out your existence. You've come to life and you are human and you need others to recognize that. You need others to recognize the fact that what are your basic needs? You know, you need to eat, you need to drink, you need to be heard <laughs> to be, you know, that's your humanity. And I think that that, you know, there, there have been, you know, many, many examples that have shown that a child who is not, or a baby who doesn't get affection when they're born um, may have the nourishment in terms of food and water that they need, but they don't have affection. Uh, they die quicker or quicker than the the child who may be undernourished at first, but uh, has the love and affection and attention that is required of you know to as as humans. Um, we're social creatures, and uh, that is part of our makeup. It's as important as breathing, as eating, as water, and I think that that's forgotten. Uh, it's been forgotten in, in, in this world of this extremely fast-paced world that we live in. And I think that that really needs to, to, to not only, we may think that it's obvious, but it's not in the, it's not in the constructs, and even in the funding constructs of the world going forward. The importance of taking a pause and going back to that important necessity of, of feeling part of the global constructs of, as, and of we, as we move forward. Beautifully put. Thank you. Maybe we'll give the last question to Pat. Oh, thank you so much, Elliot. Um, I came into the room a little bit late, afraid, um, but it has been most inspiring. Thank you, Helen, so much for what you've had to say. And really, the question is very simple. And I, I apologize if you perhaps have answered it in your, your talk before. Um, is there any particular philosopher or philosophy or philosophies that have inspired you in the way that you think about life and what has influenced your way of working? I, I, I've been following a lot of philosophical arguments recently, and I'd love to hear um, if, if you have an answer to that question. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, and I think... Um, I have two answers to that. One is that I think it's a combination of the many philosophies and cultures that I've encountered across the world in different communities that have really kind of intertwined to get me to where I am. I think I've taken a little bit of everywhere, a little bit of everybody, a little bit of every culture, language, um, religion, philosophy that I've encountered, way of life. I think, to create my own kind of global vision and perception. So that's one answer to it. The other one that I think um, is very important to me particularly is the fundamental 
values that you learn through martial arts um, and the importance. Uh, I wish that there was a lot more of a martial arts type of value-based society because because martial arts bring to the roots of respect, of dignity, of you know self-preservation through the capacity of learning how to you know to defend yourself but not in in the constructs of violence but more in the constructs of learning the protection of your own humanity and at the same time understanding the core values of, of respect and dignity that are needed to move us forward therefore knowing how to also address aggressivity conflict um, and and using it actually as a tool for conflict resolution and i think the fundamental values that are taught um, in martial arts are, are extremely important um, and we're seeing it used more and more in in the different peace building constructs um, from and and i'm not just talking about martial arts uh you know um just in terms of of the the the, the sports i'm also talking about the, uh, the constructs around that, the meditation and yoga and the combination of those that I think are extremely important. Um, you know, and I've seen the children who grow up with those values, who learn it through different practices of martial arts. You know, myself, I've done this with my child since, since, we're, when, since he's very little in, in Taekwondo. Um, I saw my brother evolve through judo. I saw... Um, martial arts instruction being used in conflict uh, zones and situations with the youth and that is extremely powerful uh, in terms of being able to address some of the you know the the, the the core basic principles that if they're not addressed can lead to conflict um, so I, I hope that helps that is extraordinary thank you so much it's another dimension to add to my um, curious all of this. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you, Patton. Yeah, definitely. Double double click on all that, Helen. Uh, as as you know, I've always felt uh, martial arts of the potential for empowerment, and it brings a very practical philosophy into into any space, and really allows for the the kind of ethic of might for right uh which which you really embody so wanted to thank you thank you so much it was really wonderful i've gotten a number of messages from folks who found this quite enriching myself included and i think you are a wonderful example of the spirit that you spoke to of of really just caring for people and it's incredible to hear how hard you work and have worked but it, it feels like where you get that fuel is is that real uh, love of people that, that you embody. And so really want to honor that and, and share my and our appreciation. It's been a wonderful time. I appreciate you taking the extra time to be with us today. And is there any way uh, folks can be of service or support for those who might be so inclined? Oh, I think that, you know, um, participating in these in, in these kinds of areas, and I think you know, whatever we can all take from from these kinds of lessons and then share them forward, I think is is extremely um, important. And um, 
and, and you know, maybe maybe brainstorming on ways to bring kind of these these ideas and these stories, and not just mine, you know, but um, into a more you know global space. I think would be helpful in terms of brainstorming on on how we can truly leverage lessons learned. You know, where a lot of people have um, lived in in different contexts and different constructs, and I think. Um, those stories, I think, can help move uh, move move us forward. Um, and oftentimes, there is just not enough space right now, um, as Kate was mentioning earlier, to be able to share the lessons learned. And I think lessons learned are actually not not shared sufficiently in terms of then the next steps in decision making processes in our own lives, but also in big organizations. Um, and I think that that needs to to change. So, you know, if you have any any spaces or any ideas or ways to to enable me to, I think, share this further and wider, um, or or bring in more people to share, I think, so that we we use some of these lessons to move forward. Um, I think that's great. Watch Helen. Please go ahead. There's one more actually. You know um, that. I was talking specifically about the work that needs to be done to evolve on um, <clears throat> gender-based violence solutions in the 21st century and the 21st century construct um, when we're talking about the challenges that borders represent in terms of laws. And, and as you know, I am also working on developing a foundation specifically to have um, a legal fund that is accessible to victims of, of violence around the world and legal advice that can help people address the loopholes in which they fall into as soon as we are dealing with any type of international context, um, nationalities, you know, diverse nationalities, um, and so on and so forth, or, or, or living in a country that is not your own when you become victim of this, or uh, there's so many different, different uh, constructs that are actually much more common than we think. And so I am developing a foundation to address this as well as create a new educational type of network and media and global engagement on this and uh, a policy arm. Um, and I think there are actually solutions that can be moved forward in not too complicated a way. So if there's anybody interested as well in knowing more about this or who has ideas of, of you know, other um, people that could support this kind of initiative. And obviously then I'm looking at the funding aspects as well. Um, I think that would be very, you know, very useful. So that's it for now. Right on. So anyone who is, I guess, coming from either a funding or perhaps legal uh, inside perspective on that side of things, if you could reach out to Helen or, or myself and I'll, I'll pass you on. That would be great. So one more time, thank you, Helen, and thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, this new System Changer Spotlight Room, we're going to be running a few times uh, a month and uh, taking the opportunity to feature, as I've put it before, so many of us have been really inspired by uh, all the change makers we've found, but then we come across folks who just really stick out because of their their work and the the impact that they've made. And, and Helen was definitely one of those bright lights. And so we're going to be featuring a few more of those. Uh, tomorrow, we've got Changemakers United. Saturday, we run Society OS and all of this under the Global Unity 
club. So if you want to follow it, hit the greenhouse at the top or head to globalunity.org. Uh, if you want to add yourself to the Changemakers United database and be updated as it develops, you can head to my Twitter account. The pinned tweet has a link. Our friend Benjamin Life set up uh, where you can add yourself and any information on your movement or project that you like. Uh, and with that, I want to, again, say thank you, Helen. Uh, it was really a pleasure getting to hear more of your, your incredible work and story. And I uh, just want to encourage you to keep keep doing this incredible work that you are doing. And can't wait to see how that work evolves over the next many years. So thank you again, everyone. And we'll... Thank you. Um, mm-hmm, thank please. you, uh, Elliot, as well, you know, for, for the amazing work that you're developing and the thinking around these global change makers. Um, I think that this, you know, it's the beginning of something that can really, really create impact. And I think everybody here has something to bring to the table. I wish we could hear more from them. And I think there's an opportunity to do that later. There's several of you with whom I've connected um, offline that I look forward to to engaging in further conversations because I'm sure everybody has a particular story, a special you know, special experience that is equally as valuable as mine. And, and by sharing, I think that's how we move forward. So thank you so much for, for what you've done, Elliot. Thank you. I see folks in the room who, who kind of have their specialties within, whether it be uh, communications and film or working on areas around gender-based violence. And so there are, you know, these, these uh, overlapping uh, areas and, and specialties that, that we just need to bring together, uh, kind of to Eric's question. So, uh, but we could certainly go on and we, we will let you get some dinner and, uh, enjoy the rest of your night after a long day, but thank you everyone. Have a great rest of the day and uh, week, and hopefully we will all connect soon. Thank you. Goodbye. Great room. Great room. Bye-bye.